Hello everyone and welcome to Chapter Tactics. This is a Warhammer 40k podcast that focuses on playing Warhammer 40k competitively at all levels of the game. I'm your host, Mr. PD Pob. And before I announce the co-hosts that are going to be on this episode, I know we've had a little less playing competitive 40k focus on this podcast. I want to thank you all for bearing with us. Uh, there were some really good content the past couple of weeks on chapter tactics that I felt we needed to address. But today's episode, we're going to be talking about playing 9th edition, something all of you have been asking about, and we're going to do it. So we're going to talk about 9th edition and the new 9th edition FAQ that GW just dropped on the 10th of August. And with me, of course, I have three amazing co-hosts, people who have been on the podcast numerous times, who know what they're talking about, at least they think they know what they're talking about most of the time. Uh, I've got with me, with me Mr. Scarry from Scardcast. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Chapter Tactics. Mm, very menacing. And then we have Sean from In the Finest Hour, which uh, made its triumphant return. Clap, clap, clap. Thank you. Thinking what I know, I know what I'm talking about is basically my primary skill. <laughs> and then finally... The myth, the legend, the robot himself, Mr. Brandon Grant. Yeah, it's really good to be back, Pablo. And I've realized I don't really know what I'm talking about most of the time. <laughs> it's okay. Br- Brandon is plugged into the internet, so he just spits it out. Anyways, speaking of being plugged into the internet, Brandon and Skari have a lot of games on Tabletop Simulator, and I believe Sean has games on Tabletop Simulator played too. And real games. And real games, of course. We have, we have we have been lucky enough to have some real games as well. Uh, so we we've been playing ninth edition games. Even I myself have been playing. I've probably played more ninth edition games this year than I have played eighth edition games. That's not a testament to my ability to play ninth edition games. So much as just uh, it speaks to how busy I've been this year. Uh, but. We've all been playing 9th edition. We have our own opinions and thoughts about how the edition plays. And on top of that, we receive an FAQ. Uh, I actually think this is a really good GW FAQ. So we're going to talk about that. And then we're going to talk about what it's like to play 9th edition. Some insights we've learned. Some things that you can really only learn from playing the game itself. Uh, Not necessarily rule stuff, but tactics. uh, Little tips and tricks that we've learned as we're developing our lists and learning this new edition. And... I I I don't I obviously I'm speaking just for myself here but I think it's shaping out to be one of the best strategic editions that GW has ever put out. Uh it honestly reminds me of 7th edition but before all the crazy you know formations and stuff that GW was kind of throwing in like right at the beginning of 7th edition uh was actually a really good time to play 40k. So that's kind of what this edition reminds me of, although I, I think it's probably a little more strategic because you're adding new things like stratagems and actions, and it's so cool. So that's what we're going to talk about. Before we jump into that, some quick announcements. If you want to buy stuff, head on over to FrontlineGaming.org. They sponsor every episode of Chapter Tactics, so if you want to support the podcast and support the people who bring you the ITC, ITC terrain, and beautiful FLG mats, Head on over to FrontlineGaming.org and take a look around. See if you can find something cool for yourself. And then also go on to the Frontline Gaming Network where 40k Stat Center is back. Hopefully weekly. We'll see. Uh, I know there's not a lot of tournaments, but you know Val and Peter always deliver with their content. And there is a lot to talk about. They're always talking about things because they're on every podcast. Uh, and 
Check out the Frontline Gaming Network, The Art of War, and all that other good stuff. All right. Let's jump into it. So we're going to start with the FAQ first. Now, there were three FAQs that GW put out that I think are relevant to competitive 40k. There's one, the, the power rating one. How relevant on a scale of, of like... That's so important. We have to talk <laughs> about it. Uh, okay. Power rating is uh, on the irrelevant scale on a one to like like a paper, paper cut. Is that... <laughs> Paper cuts are really relevant, so that's a very confusing scale. You're right, you're right. I apologize. <laughs> I apologize. On a one to Mandrakes, excuse me. How relevant Ooh, now is... Now you're confusing me even more. <laughs> <laughs> I, just, I just named the worst Dark Eldar unit I can think of. Anyways, you get my point. Uh, we're not going to be talking about that power rating FAQ. I believe there's also another one, like the uh, Prophecy of the Wolf FAQ. and the... We're just going to talk about the three core ones. The core rulebook the manual, the Munitorm Field Manual, and the Grand Tournament Mission Pack uh, FAQs. That is all we're going to talk about, uh, because that would be an entire episode of itself. We talked about every single FAQ that uh, GW put out. So let's go ahead and jump into it, starting with the core rulebook. Uh, quick, just round table, starting with Brandon Grant. What is something you noticed immediately that jumped out at you about the core rulebook that maybe you were expecting them to errata and they did or they didn't? Uh, something like that. Um, well, um, I was definitely expecting some FAQs to cover the new terrain rules because they're new and there's a lot of confusion. And, um, I think one of the rules that was tripping up a lot of guard players, for instance, was the dense cover rule, which states that if you can't draw lines to someone's base from your model, um, in essence, then you are at minus one in the shooting phase to hit that model. But models with indirect fire do not need line of sight to target enemy units. And it makes sense that they're shooting over terrain, not through it. But rules as written, dense cover works exactly the way it's written. Every shooting mm -hmm. attack, indirect fire included, takes a minus one to hit if you can't draw a line of sight that doesn't go over the terrain. Which, in the most ridiculous interpretation, means that if you don't have line of sight and there's dense terrain on the table, everything you shoot is minus one because you <laughs> cannot draw line of sight that doesn't go over the terrain. Mm -hmm. Anyway, I don't think anyone's going to rule it that way, but I do think that if you can only draw lines between your indirect firing model and the enemy model that pass over dense terrain, then you are at a minus one to hit even if you're shooting indirectly. I was hoping that would be addressed and it was not. Yeah, the terrain rules, I think, is going to be the hardest thing for people to grasp, not only because, like you said, they're they're complicated, they didn't address enough in this FAQ, I agree with you in that, but also because terrain itself is so varied. Uh, you have, you know, entire sects of, of uh, tournament organizers who run ITC terrain, then you have others who do their own thing, and then you obviously you have what GW puts out in the GW terrain. I'm glad the terrain rules feel like they're designed to be customizable because there's so many different features but at the same time it's it's just there's going to be a lot of growing pains and i'm so glad there's not some poor tournament going on right now trying to figure out you know what's good and what isn't good uh because i can almost like write the horror story in my head of like a stream happening where this weird terrain rule you know basically ruins the game for in the finals because this one guy can shoot this one thing you know it it's just Obscure terrain is a kind of a slippery slope, I feel, um, and uh, I'm just glad we we don't have any tournaments suffering because of it, or or any rules um, that are put out to the public. 
Uh, th- that said, I wasn't happy about the fortification change. Oh, Oof, we'll, we'll yeah. get to that. <laughs> All right, Sean, do you, do you have anything to add about the fortification change? Um, it makes fortifications unplayable. Um, you can't put a fortification within three inches of any other terrain feature. And if that means that you can't place them, then you just can't place them. And given the size of the table and the terrain density that they recommend and the size of most fortification pieces, I don't see any scenario in which you can put a, a fortification down on the table realistically. Uh-uh-uh, not allowed to park by that barrel. Uh-uh-uh. Yeah, yeah. It's it's ridiculous. Um, and having just absolutely no qualifiers about, well, you can move pieces around or anything like that, and I get why they don't want that, but this feels like they did not think this one through at all, and this is one of the two that I feel they dropped the ball pretty hard on. Personally, I think that if they, you know, at Tio's discretion, I guess, like RTTs and things like that, depending on how heavy... I could see Tio's being like, yeah, just move that. That ruins like two seconds so you can put your sister battle basilicum or whatever down. Or Sure. Because some of you those can... terrain pieces are like, those fortifications are massive. Like they're yeah, big. they're at least eight right. inches wide or so for the um, battle sanctum. Yeah. I, I mean, I have an Aquila stronghold. You can't put that on the table without no. moving terrain. I don't, I don't see how they think this is even vaguely workable. Like, I get the intention behind it. They don't want people pushing terrain in weird ways. I absolutely have been at tournaments where they made rulings about, like, you can remove terrain, and it's like, well, I removed this piece of terrain, and now you have no cover, and good luck. But this just this seems like someone just made this ruling without ever having tried it on the table and, and seeing what it actually means for a game. Now, what I suspect is that the people who did try it out are not running the rules as written terrain density in the rule book, which is one piece yeah, of terrain for every twelve by twelve section of the board. Yeah. Yeah. Uh yeah, I don't I don't know. I GW in my experience uh has never gotten the fortification rules correct. They've always nope. been like really stupid like where you could move your entire army with a psychic power in seventh edition um <sighs> or unplay yeah right the, the heavy sigh the sigh of seventh edition I, I believe that's the anthem of the entire edition but yeah the yeah i don't know fortifications are such an awkward are they're, they're such an awkward um rule and model uh to get for gw to get correct but anyways uh well sorry they've been, they, they've been but, doing well in aos like in aos Every single faction has, like, a terrain piece that they put on the table, pretty much. Mm-hmm. Whether you're, like, ogres or elves or whatever. So, yeah, it's although... not like they... You know, some of them are really weird. And like, okay, AOS is a different game. But they, yeah. they, it's not like they haven't had mechanics that have to do with that sort of thing with factions. The difference, I think, is that AOS is not as much a shooting game. And terrain has a much larger effect on shooting due to the way it's designed in both games. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, you're right. You're both. I think you're both right. AOS does prove that they can get to get fortification rules now, kind of maybe better. Moving Anyways. on a little bit, I will say that I think this is going to either be played around by tournament organizers by being like, this is the designated place you can put your fortification in every mm. deployment zone yeah. because of how we've laid out the board, or 
this rule might get tweaked at some point. So I'm not ready to just be like, well, better throw that battle sanctum in the trash. Um, yeah. Just yeah. yet. Too That's late. Sure. There's also, um, like, for example, the, at the WTC, you know, the terrain layouts will be very clearly defined. Mm-hmm. So in your list building, you will be able to make sure that you can fit a terrain piece that you want or fortification yeah. that you want based on the different terrain layouts. So, uh, so good, good segue there, Scary. Um, based off of uh, what you three have been playing, what what's the kind of optimal terrain rules and terrain layout that you've been playing with? Optimal? Yeah. What do you um, mean? Like obscuring terrain is probably is something that took us some getting used to, but I really like what obscuring terrain has done for the game. Mm. Uh, what rules do you? What uh, uh, terrain features and terrain properties? do you give to your terrain pieces while you're playing games of ninth edition or that you like to see on your terrain pieces? I think obscuring uh, is my favorite and yeah. dense is decent as well. There is a, I personally have been really enjoying using the WTC terrain layouts that they've kind of like their beta layouts for the WTC um, like games because they have nine different say eight different table layouts right yeah and and they they vary from like super dense to like not as dense so it's nice to kind of switch it around and play in in like the the, the broad spectrum that's what i've been enjoying and and real quick for those of you who might not know wtc means the world team championship formerly known as the uh or they were uh known as the ETC people, but they've since branched off and formed the WTC or the World Team Championship. Um, and uh, you can check out their website, worldteamchampionship.com, for these terrain rules. Uh, but, you know, they're a group of seasoned TOs and team, you know, tournament veterans who, who where terrain is really important, right? Because in team tournaments, you need varying levels of terrain, more so than just uh, something like the LVO, where... You know, like every game should be roughly the same, not com- not identical, but you know, every game should have roughly the same amount of terrain and all that. Uh, but anyway, so that that's just a quick aside. Uh, continue. Oh, that's all I had to say. I think uh, like something with, that's very similar to what we saw late eighth edition or mid to late eighth edition with a couple of big like line of sight blockers towards the middle of the table in like L formats. Well, they don't necessarily have to be an L now. It could be any sort of like large piece of terrain that has the obscuring rule that you can use to maneuver around or create lanes of fire. And then usually in your deployment zone, a some sort of obscuring piece of terrain that you can not necessarily hide your whole army behind, but that gives you the option to hide mm-hmm. some parts of your army, as well as like some dense terrain nearby that give you the ability to have models you might not be able to hide, but can then take you know negative modifiers to hit, make them a little bit more survivable, and mm-hmm. things like mm-hmm. that. Also, is it just me, or are the midfield objectives classically just right in the open? Like, doesn't they even matter if it's yeah. an infantry-sized model, just a single model on the objective, there's not going to be enough terrain on the middle objectives to hide anything. Yeah. I think that is often the case, but also, like, you know, explicitly the objectives cannot be placed on or within terrain. Um, so, like, people are going to have to get used to moving their models off of terrain to get to objectives. That's going to be way more common. Like, you can... You, like, I found that 
you know, you can still be kind of within terrain or, you know, depends on where the objective is. But a lot of times it'll be like craters or forests or something that's nearby. Right. And, but if you want to be on a, or near an objective, you're more than likely going to be exposing yourself. Um, and then getting shot or charged or, you know, and then as we talk about like how the games have been other than terrain, that definitely factors in the placement not only that but the way that the deployment zones are right now there's some new deployments um in the format new games and some of those deployments are are like like takes a while get takes a while to get used to because you don't have as much space to deploy in you know your Mm -hmm. angles are different and it just changes like your thought process yeah, I actually really like the new deployments. They at first I didn't like them, uh, mostly because my very first game of Ninth Edition played, I played a, a very large horde army, um, and we played on the the short hammer and anvil terrain where it doesn't go oh, or deployment where yeah. it doesn't go all the way across. Yep. Uh, <laughs> I think it was like number six or so. Anyways, but yeah, it's just a small section of hammer and anvil, and I could barely yeah. fit my army in it. And I was like, wait a minute. Like, shouldn't it just be ham? Like, why didn't they extend it all the way? Um, but as as I played more games, I've kind of like I kind of like the variation. Mm-hmm. Well, before we get to talking about games, can we hit the one other pretty big change that they made? The lookout sir rule. Uh, Absolutely, because vehicles with less than ten wounds and monsters don't protect characters anymore. And I would think, like, if no one else, Scari would be hugely affected by that. Yes, Dark Eldar are no longer going to be in competitive play. Stop preparing against them. You'll yeah, never just throw see them, Dark Eldar ever. Throw um, them in the garbage. So, you know, you don't even have to read the codex or know what it does. <laughs> because, you know, I don't know anyone who would play Dark Eldar. I, but I you'd have know. to be a fool, yeah. It's all salamanders and ultramarines from here on out. <laughs> <laughs> For anybody who doesn't know sarcasm, yes, okay, it is um, It is a big change. Um, it doesn't change the way I have been playing, actually, hmm. right now, at all. Uh, my Archon is the reroll bubble Archons, usually by, like, ten wounded Ravagers anyway, or Reapers. So uh, he okay. doesn't get changed. And my like homunculus and drazar or urian and homunculus that walk up the field are surrounded by two units of three talos so they're three strong so you have to kill a talos and two units of four or five grotesques so you also hmm. have to kill you know six grotesques so, so it's not like like in in my sense it doesn't really affect it but it does when i was trying to like save them with like a venom or something right, right. I, I don't know so i get i get that for the lookout sir rule, I get that there's probably going to be some issues no matter which way you go with that. Um, however, there was a a game I played where I had Gilliman and a librarian dreadnought like covering for each other. Sure, Cause, cause no, they were... I don't think anyone is arguing that was not what was intended. Like that that was dumb, and everyone knows it. Yeah, yeah. Um, but stuff that you know, a lot of people have noticed, like the the thunderfire cannons, tech marine can just be shot now. It's yep. like, oh, I don't think that's what they meant to do. Yeah, yeah. And, and you could have, like, a thousand Venoms around yeah. your Drezar model, but Drezar can still get shot with, like, a bolt gun. Yeah. It's because the Venoms are high in the sky, Drezar's, like, walking on the ground, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's that's it. <laughs> that's clearly, definitely how it works, and, it, and that's, that's why it's different for aircraft. Yeah. Wait. <laughs> uh, anyways. Exactly. Yeah, it, it is... <laughs> Um, 
I'm I'm not super concerned with it. Uh, I I played some early shenanigans on with abusing the lookout server role. Um, and let's be honest, Thunderfire cannons they're really good. Even with even with the change the terrain rule, even with the change of lookout, sir, I think you'll still probably see some Thunderfire cannons be used. Maybe, um, yeah. Depends on whether you have a babysitter unit for it. I mean, you know, just like a, you could stick them on an objective with a five-man unit of scouts behind some obscuring terrain so that Thunderfire cannon can't be shot. There's there's play. You just, you, a babysitting unit is now required, um, yeah. w- which is the big, which I think is a fair compensation to stop shenanigans like Gilliman covering other characters like well they could easily have just said that you know models with the character rule no don't count towards this or something no that's too much that's copying eighth edition we don't want we don't want that yeah yeah we need to change (laughs) we need to change so many obscure things anyway i'm gonna rant i'd rant on that all right let's get to my favorite part of this faq the rare rules section oh boy uh, where we're gonna get comedy gold um previously in the last edition the faqs you had to scour through all the faqs to find all the weird things that people were trying to abuse or the weird questions that were asking <laughs> gws the ones that made you go like who's asking this now we can find them in the rare rules section which is i think the best part of this faq um so first of all uh let's talk about some weird things that i didn't think people were playing the way they were um mm-hmm. the first one that popped up to me was the a character people were playing i guess it so that characters could smite x amount of time so if you took like a single librarian i guess because the rules didn't specifically say that they couldn't cast smite over and over and over again they were just gonna they were just yeet smites at their opponent with just like one psyker yeah is that a thing um it was arguable i don't think it was correct but um due to some weirdness it's like you know you you can you can manifest smite any number of times in a phase. A psyker can't manifest the a power that another psyker has manifested more than once, except for smite. And so there was a reading where you could cast smite repeatedly. I didn't agree with it, but there there was an argument to be had there, um, sure. which they cleared up pretty obviously. Of just no, you can't cast three or four smites with Magnus. That's not how it works. Yeah. That makes sense. Okay. But the, to their credit, in the rare rules section, there were a lot of good stuff here. I liked that they they um, addressed specific nuances like the priority and how rules in, you know prioritized each other and multiple attacks with the, yeah. you know, when you do mortal wounds. It's just they, they cleared up a lot of little tiny things that you'd normally have to argue about where, where it was like this obscure situation, like one in 100 games where this random rules thing might come into play and and ruin the game or whatever um the kind of stuff you see at like the top tables and stuff uh that they fixed which i think is really cool admittedly pablo i think my favorite note isn't even into the rare rules section Mm -hmm. what is it the change to heavy cover so yeah i liked that one because they made it work how you would think no it already worked that way so if you read the terrain rules they explicitly tell you that terrain never affects invulnerable saves it only affects that, armor saves. Ah, that's not the change. Update to heavy cover said that when it updates, when it improves your saving throw, invulnerable saving throws are not affected. That is not the change. To be fair, yeah, that's not the change. the The change is that the unit that the unit that sh- 
uh, that um, was when being you, attacked, if they charged, the, yeah, when they don't you get charge, anything. you do not get the benefit of heavy cover. Which was, the, you could that tell was that already was like how it was in, working. Yeah, that's, that's no, like, the previous version was worded so that when you charged, the enemy did not get the benefit of heavy cover. Oh, that's yes. Which was pretty clearly not what it was supposed to work. Yeah, not intended for sure. Yeah. Okay. Then I'm like, glad that that's cleared up. Yeah, yes. it was. Yeah, they reversed it. It was before it was you charged into heavy cover and you like pushed the barrels into your enemies like yeah. faces. Yeah. And anyways, yeah, they, uh, good stuff. Glad they do that. I'm yeah. kind of bummed they took out the desperate breakout uh, rule. Um, because a couple times mm. I'd used like a drop pod where my opponent would wrap a drop pod and then I'd use the desperate breakout rule to blow to kill the drop pod because <laughs> it couldn't move out so die. It was kind of an abuse that I, we argued about here huh. at Frontline um, briefly and then uh, we decided to wait for an FAQ and here it is. So I, I'm glad they cleared it up. You can no longer desperate breakout a unit that can't move and kill it to uh then shoot at the unit that was that that had it in combat so no more suiciding drop pods to kind of cheese your opponent um don't i don't mind that i just think it was really funny it was a a thing that we personally got into a little bit of discussion about here uh in nevada but what i liked more specifically about this rare rule was not only did they address that specific instance but they also talked about other things too they set a precedence whereas if a unit mm -hmm. cannot move it cannot perform the action that the stratagem requires and on top of that you just you just lose out on the stratagem so if you desperate break out your drop pod now you, you still get to desperate break out your drop pod but you just lose the cp and then nothing happens so it's a complete waste and well, i like you, you i, I like that precedent. see if it dies well, no, right. you, you you don't do that anymore because the drop pod doesn't move. So it didn't make the fallback move, so right. it doesn't die. No, that's at the end. You still, like, with the Desperate Breakout strat, you have to roll a dice for each model. And on a one, they die. Then you fall back. And then any units that end their fallback move with the negation range die. Oh, okay. So so instead of, okay, I, I get I get what you're saying now. So instead of, so the drop pod, you, you have a one in six chance of killing your drop pod, basically? Basically, yeah. That's mm -hmm. how I'm reading it. Yeah, yeah, so okay. the way I had I thought it was going to work was, well, you can't fall back, so you physically can't fall back, which is what they said, but I thought that it would just lead to the death of everyone, but they they just said that because you haven't made a fallback move, you don't end a fallback move, so therefore you don't die. So, yeah. uh, you know, it just means my shard nets are back in business. <laughs> I love the idea pots. of Gilliman like being surrounded by termagants like or some endless horde that he doesn't want to chew through and so he desperate breakouts and then just rolls a one and just like ah oh. <laughs> isn't Gulliman a monster you just shoot them you just be like shoot them while he's in combat sure six shots yeah yeah, yeah. 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 And, and then take out those extra right. like what what is he it's doing not... trying to run away from a bunch of gods he's, <laughs> he's probably like four ultra you bastards ah. right yeah you, good point. I I just love the idea of like a Lehman Rust tank getting you know swarmed by like rippers or something, and then just getting desperate broken out. Or I don't know. Anyways, <laughs> rare rules, everyone. There are mm -hmm. always going to be a great source of entertainment from here on out, and I'm excited. Uh, all right, uh, let's go ahead and move to the uh, mission pack real quick. Not much has changed here. Um, they did kind of uh, address actions a little bit more. Which I think was super cool. Yeah. Was there anything that jumped out at you guys about the uh, Grand Tournament mission pack? Um, just some uh, like objectives got placed differently. 
Yes, like that, that one like, was one like, I had seen an issue with. Yeah, uh, there's there's that's... one where the objectives are placed. They basically like no, the objectives are in like the wrong spot, right? So just kind of move the objectives to somewhere different. Um, and then it's it's essentially because the 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 um the mission pack, the Grand Tour mission pack, has a lot of the same rules that the actual rulebook has, or pretty mm-hmm. much everything. It's like mm-hmm. almost a copy paste. The, yeah, you, almost. you can almost get away with not buying the core rulebook and just buying the Grand Tournament Mission Pack, and then that being your what you use to learn the game. Yeah, and you get the, the Minotaur mm-hmm. Field Manual as well. So if mm-hmm. you're a tournament goer, you don't really need the, the main rulebook, because all that has is all the stories and, and lore, and it also has all the Crusade stuff, basically. Yeah, yeah F that. You don't need any of that stuff. You're hey, here to hey, to kill, hey, to crush noobs, and take power names. level. Okay, <laughs> <laughs> that's true. That's true. They did. They they finally touched power level after three years. <laughs> They're throwing it. Yeah. Anyways, hey, um, my Reaver jet bikes went down in power level and up in points. Okay. Let's <laughs> also. Let's <laughs> if you're going to introduce new people to this game, I think the crusade mechanic is very well. Yeah, it's really fun. Yeah. I agree. Yes. <laughs> I think That's the thing true. I like the most is you can play crusade games against your friends' very competitive armies. Like, it's designed that you can do that. You just have to play a crusade mission. So right. if you're a competitive player that wants to practice some random, like, mission, play a crusade game against your friend's crusade army. And then the power level will be relevant. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's great. Uh, So, yeah, they didn't change much else. Um, I don't think. Do we need to go in here? Any of this stuff? I don't think Psychic so. No, not really. A bit, but there's that. not much to talk about there. Just a little bit of cleanup stuff. Yeah. All right. Finally, the Munitorum Field Manual change. Uh, this FAQ mostly Forge World. Matter of fact, I, is it? It's not all Forge well, World. Well, they fix the. Uh, uh, there's a lot the of typos. Blood Angel Elites thing, which was like yeah. they they took away the Lasterist that gave uh, things like Sanguinary Guard all their equipment for free. Um, and I'm and yeah. Other than that, there's like just a couple of point changes here or there. Nothing crazy. Yeah, yeah. The, the basically it was all just cleanup of weird little errors and um fixing spots where weapons had different prices on units where they should not. Um, the the big obvious one being the uh the Chaos Castellan. Uh, they fixed its weapons to be in line with the uh, prices of the Loyalist Castellan. Yeah, oh, which they oh. left untouched. And the Taunar? Yeah. Good. So if you, were, if you just well, ordered a Taunar because you were like, I want to play a Taunar because Siegler loves Taunars, and then you were like, I'm going to get, now you have to pay an extra 300 points for it. I think nope. they kind of just kicked Tau Back out of in your metagame. display case. Yeah. <laughs> so, I mean... It's still it's still very scary. It's just not at not like what it was for like two seconds. You can't run yeah. two of them in a list, <laughs> which is um, well, be, yeah. I don't think you can run one of them in a list anymore. Well, that's fair, Sh- Sean. I know I know you love Tau. I know they're your boys, your blue boys. However, there are better ways to buff an army than stooping yourself as low as to give yourself a Lord of War Forge World crutch, okay? I had that unit back in 7th edition. This wasn't <laughs> the first time I had one. It just, as soon as I bought it, it got invalidated then also. Oh. 
man, that's a bummer. And you're excited. Yeah, you're like, yes! I, I put it on the table for two practice games and never other than that. Because oh, man, every time there is, it has become good, they immediately ban it or hike its price to the point where it is unusable again. Ugh, that feels bad. I'm sorry, yeah. Sean. It's, yeah, I, get, it's I feel great. you. Uh, speaking of awesome, cool things that uh, you buy and then immediately get invalidated, they didn't mention anywhere in the FAQs uh, what you do with units that they didn't have in um, the Munitorm Field Manual that they mm. had in previous Forge World indexes. Things like Lice Isodon, the Chaplain Dreadnought, the Whirlwind Helios, which is my pet, um, you know, model. So I. I'm pretty sure the way we've been playing is you just can't play with those models anymore because they don't have updated 9th edition points. However, I would have liked like a statement or something. Just like, hey, everyone, just so you know, there were points for these models. They're they're not legended. They're not even – they just don't exist anymore. It's a new (laughs) policy by GW. It's it's statement by omission. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, Pablo, I know as an Imperial player, you're not used to this, but sometimes they just get rid of your models and you can <laughs> never use them again. So, oh, yep. suck it up, Imperial boy. <laughs> hey, I have, a, I have a Dark Elder Raven, if anybody still knows right? what that was, sitting on my shelf oh. that I that I can use in Apocalypse games, but not in <laughs> like regular games. Yeah, I, I believe there were models that they still sold on GW's website that they mm-hmm. had removed yeah. rules for before mm-hmm. Elias Isodon, who literally never got a model. I think uh, the 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 bike war bus is such a model. No, After no, that's Zard's not. He's, he's in he the index. He doesn't have rules anymore. I remember oh, no, he's in the thing. index, That though. thing was like a third edition Forge World model. That was cool. Yep. Oh, yeah, it looks like the Bat Flyer or whatever. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> Has always oh, been a piece of garbage. <laughs> uh, anyways, hey, so... F- hey. <laughs> Uh, so good. So far, so good. Um, I don't mind the Forge World points changes for the most part. I think it's pretty cool that they they kind of brought everything in line. Also, the Cyclops' demolition vehicle didn't go up in points at all. It stayed exactly the same, which mm-hmm. which was amazing because I was sad <laughs> when they bumped it from 40 to 60 last edition. So they kept it the same. GW, you're doing great with those Forge World points costs. Don't listen to what anyone <laughs> has to say as long as that Cyclops demolition vehicle stays the same. All right. Uh, that I think that's pretty much it with the FAQ. Uh, let's go ahead. We're, before we go into that, quick word from our sponsors now. This episode is brought to you by HP Instant Ink. No one is reading your mind, but HP Instant Ink knows when your printer is running low and sends you new cartridges. So you never have to think about ink. Save up to 50%. You'll pay less than $5 a month for ink and never run out again. Find out if your printer is eligible and enroll today at hpinstantink.com. Conditions apply. For details, visit hp.com slash instantinkspotify. And we're back. I know uh, we've been kind of putting the, the advertisements like randomly in the episode, so I've just, I'm going to do a little bit better of uh, announcing that so that everyone knows when the ad is coming on, because um, sometimes it can be a little loud. Uh, anyways... Let's talk about the playing ninth edition games now. Now, I don't want to. I don't want to go into these crazy spiels where each of us kind of, th- you know, throw out information. Um, so let's just take turns talking about our very first ninth edition game and or our first couple of ninth edition games and the kind of just general impressions we got from playing the edition. Things that we immediately noticed, uh, insights, 
etc. And I, I want to start this time with Sean. So I think the the big thing I've taken away from my my first few ninth edition games is that like I mean this is not a huge insight, but like scoring is really important and harder than you think. Um, you know, you've, you've got to be getting onto objectives immediately and getting those points right out of the gate, uh, because the game is not long and you definitely can max out that primary, uh, fairly quickly. It's, it's possible to be done with it by turn four and then just not need to do anything turn five, but you, you're not going to get to do that most of the time. That's just not going to be an option. So you need units that can get onto objectives turn one. Um, if all you have is, like, marines kind of wandering on foot, you're not going to be able to do it, and that means you're going to be starting down on the score from that very first turn, and that's a bad place to be. So make sure you have some fast units in your army that can get onto those objectives immediately. Yeah, on that note, if you're going to take secondaries that require performing actions, you probably oh boy, yeah. want <laughs> models that are faster than move six. Yeah. Because uh, good luck getting to the objectives turn one to start scoring them if you can't actually get close enough to them. Yeah. Um, so infantry keyword with move 12 are actually really good for scoring secondaries now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, as a, as a quick aside, I've I've labeled my scout bikers action monkeys, um, <laughs> and but they've literally they've just been whenever they can infantry. performing actions. They're not infantry, so they can't perform all the actions. There's some actions they still can perform, but like the recon missions, for instance, recon objectives they can't do. They're specifically designed for the specific mission actions. But oh, what they fair. do do well is they they go out, they move 22 inches on the advance or 16 inches. And then, you know, rapid fire 22 bolter shots into someone and action if or action if they need to. So um, anyways, yeah, I, I agree, though. 12 inch infantry action monkeys are key. Yeah. Uh, Agreed. Uh, I've even yeah. found um, drum roll, please. Hellions. <laughs> Whoa. To be, to be really good at doing actions and being annoying in small five man units. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, go, go, so, anyways, uh, Scary, um, w- what is something you've noticed about your kind of first games of Ninth Edition? You have to play the game right away, and I think that's the biggest thing. And I don't think that the going first or second dilemma is such a big deal as people are making it out to be. I think that um, yes, going first gives you good. Uh, board control you can really push up onto objectives however i've won my fair share of games going second as well and i think it's the fact that a lot of people struggle sometimes to make those hard choices when their opponent is on objectives to sort of you know prioritize what to contest what to kill what to commit what to block and uh, you know going second can be just as powerful as going first but you can't like wait to do something you have to have a plan in place to sort of get stuff done from turn one because the game goes really fast and because the objectives are defend you know before you know it you won't be able to score primaries anymore yeah i i would say in my experience the player going first has a consistent advantage but it's not an overwhelming advantage yeah i mean 
to me, it's always been about perspective. We we've been arguing as a forty k gaming community. We've been arguing about the merit of going first or second and how good or bad that is since I've been playing forty k. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't think that's ever going to change. I think three years from now, there's still going to be people who complain about going first or going second, one being more powerful than the other. Um, and people even do that like in chess, right? There have been talks about changing the rules of chess, which have been around for thousands mm-hmm. of years um, because white has a slight advantage over black. And quite frankly, people just can't play their the very specific thing that they want to do because it gives a disadvantage to black um, because white gets to go first. So it's just... You know, people will complain when they have a disadvantage, experience a disadvantage that's out of their control. Um, my only kind of, uh, I guess, advice around that is to just be flexible and and adaptive. Now, the thing that I did find super annoying in a practice game is going second versus fast scouting units. The particular experience I had was the new uh, Admech Cavalry. Oh who boy. have the strat to fall back 12 inches for a command point when they oh, are charged. So good. Yeah, so yeah. good. So if you don't have your front line as a blender melee unit or don't have the fly keyword, then expect going second that these things will pen you in your deployment zone because you won't be able to move around them because they can just charge your entire front line if it's not a blender now because of Overwatch changes. And on top of that, they have three wounds per model with a four-up mm-hmm. armor save. It's like, wait, what? Um, and then if you yeah. do declare a charge because you plan on getting past them by using a charge, rules as written, they can use the ability and when they're engaged in combat. Yep. Whoa, whoa, whoa. whoa. So you could tie them up and then... They can use it like... to fall back, yes. Wow, even even when they're already in combat. Yes, yes, explicitly Ugh. so. Yeah, crazy. So, I'm thinking that uh, Raven Guard, Space Marines, um, Scouts in general can do this, where yeah. if you go first and you have Scout moves that can cross the table, you're in great shape, because if your opponent's front line isn't a Blender melee unit, they won't be able to leave their deployment zone turn one, and you can start scoring objectives early, or just develop a uh, fire supremacy early because they can't get close enough to you. Hmm. So, so speaking on that point, Brandon, uh, one of the things I noticed was uh, it's very, very important to take the center of the board and overall uh, infiltrators and scout, you know, scout movers and infiltrators um, are a lot more valuable, not only because MSU isn't as punished as it was last edition, but also because, you need to get up the board to stop some armies from just flat out winning the game, like those Cerberus Raiders or like, uh, you know, nine units of Nurglings, uh, which is something that people have been running. I, I don't know if necessarily that's the list to, to beat, but uh, losing to, you know, 27, well, actually it's a lot more than 27 wounds, nine, nine Nurgling units because you just can't kill them because you weren't prepared for it feels really bad when all you could have done is taken like two scout units and stopped that from happening. Yeah, that is true. It adds a lot of value to them, and the anything that like deep strikes, outflanks, um, or can redeploy, you know, suddenly becomes like is very very powerful to prevent those pinning actions against you, uh, to stop you from kind of like getting into the board. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, an- another thing uh, that I'd like to add 
um, from my ninth edition games is that you should really learn how to use the reserves rule that every army has access to now. It's so powerful. It, and it's absolutely going to make or break strategic good reserves. players. Yeah, strategic, excuse me, strategic reserves. Yeah. Um, the, the difference, uh, one thing I love about this that's I'm kind of starting to realize is the nuances and the differences between the best players and the good players are really going to show. You're really going to start seeing the absolute best players flex their mental muscles in this ninth edition game. And one of the core uh, areas you're going to start seeing that early is in their ability to pick and choose when models come in and out of strategic reserves. Uh, it's it's an option that everyone has. People, at least from what I've seen, people aren't using it nearly as much as they should. Uh, they're they're putting the wrong units in strategic reserve. They're bringing them on too early. It's just it, it's it's going it's a critical core part of the game now. You have to be aware of it from a defensive standpoint and from an offensive standpoint. So strategic reserves. Learn learn the nuances of it now. I fully expect to see entire podcast episodes devoted to just that topic. Things like something like in the finest hour would be perfect, uh, but mm-hmm. absolutely, that there's a pretty good chance that's going to happen sometime in the near future. Yeah. Like for example, so. I think something that every army can bring to the table is a minimum sized unit of objective secured troops put in strategic reserve. As long as there are objectives outside of your deployment zone that can be scored by a unit arriving from strategic reserve those troops are just like and uh we're on this objective now and you have to deal yeah. with this yeah, yeah absolutely super, super good uh, little units of uh, obsec is super that's another that's another thing that i've noticed playing the game obsec is still really powerful it's super <laughs> yeah, important. You, you have to wipe them out powerful. you can't just throw a unit yeah. on the objective yeah yeah um Yep, I, I agree. Uh, MSU in this edition, I really, I love that MSU is a viable thing now. Um, it wasn't so much kind of, especially in ITC missions, uh, MSU was was very very not viable. Um, but I really like the idea of MSU, the concept of playing around this board and and combining all your forces together to be to form one fist or you know uh, scattering around and kind of playing a really cagey game. I've always loved the idea of playing MSU style games in 40k. Um, so if you if you weren't building MSU style before, it's very viable. It's not the end-all be-all. You're still going to see like that star style list. You're going to still see vehicle spam, you know, horde list. You're going to see all of it. Um, it's it's going to be very interesting. I, I can't wait for tournaments to come out. <laughs> uh, what are, what are, okay, so starting with, actually, do you guys have anything else to add about your first impressions? Yeah. Um, Brandon, go ahead. I am looking forward to using more squads of Repentia in strategic reserves with huge mm. amounts of Miracle Dice generation. Yeah. Because oh. having an 11-inch charge that's auto-completable with Miracle Dice is disgusting with strategic reserves. It's yeah. You better be zoning out the whole table or uh, you're not going to like the result. Yep. Because like, oh. they're gonna make it, and they're gonna kill like those repentia kill everything they touch. They are ridiculous. Mm-hmm. Man, I'm so mad that Battle Sister squads are still sold out. I I told myself <laughs> I was gonna start a Sisters army um, after I played a Sisters game in Eighth Edition, and then looked through their codex and realized uh, how much I really like them. Even like um, so many other units that have like a 12 inch threat range that's just alpha strike style i think 
you should build lists around putting those in strategic reserve um, somehow to harass your opponents that they have to screen you out the whole game because the or at least till the end of turn three because if they don't that unit is going to come in and murder something and um, Tempestus Scions are on the list um, Corpus Scari priests are on the list um, uh, five four graph cannon space marine devastators walking onto the board is oh, really yeah. good that's you, that's really powerful um even like uh primaris aggressors coming in from reserve would be oh, kind yeah. of dumb yeah. especially if they count as not moving for ultramarines reasons yeah <laughs> yeah it yeah there's there's so much and then that that's also another part of uh uh, why MSU is really powerful. Um, oftentimes, you know, if you're playing MSU, your opponent can single out the three small units that hurt them the worst, like uh, scout bikers, for instance, if they do a lot, or, or melted guns, or whatever. Um, that's not going to be the case. Uh, but yeah, there's there's a ton of small units in every codex that are very niche. They're very fragile. Uh, that absolutely benefit from flanking coming in from the long edge or the sides in a game. So so. Uh, Emperor help you if you leave a port part of your deployment zone open for one of those units to arrive. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Or if you screen too lightly, then the Seraphim take it out, then the outflankers show up. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, that's a stupid order of operations combo, but it works because Seraphim shoot during the I have just came in from reserves phase. Oh, so what you do is you drop the Seraphim in first, and then you bring the unit on after them? Uh, yeah. You use the the stra- stratagem to shoot when they arrive. Um, so much like uh, Dark Angels and and some of the other ones that have similar stratagems, you can bring the unit in, shoot immediately to clear space, and then bring another unit in to follow them. Hmm. I, I kind of don't want them to change that because I'm okay with it. Eh, um, it's not too bad. It's is as a thing. It's it's a neat trick, but it's something you absolutely have to be aware of if you're playing them. Absolutely. Speaking of things you have to be aware of, uh everyone, I starting with Sean this time. What is something I just dropped a bunch of cans of monster. Um <laughs> <laughs> you're a true gamer now. <laughs> it's it's a white monster in uh, Jeff's honor. Um but anyways, what are what are some things starting with Sean that you would tell newer players or players who are new to ninth edition? What, uh, basically, what kind of tips and tricks you would give them um, to immediately hit the ground running and and start doing well in ninth edition or as well as they can, anyways. The number one thing: read the terrain rules and understand terrain because. Uh, it can be a bit confusing for a new player to understand like how obscuring interacts with your models, especially if you played like ITC rules in the bottom block line of sight, but then if you touch it, then it's like true line of sight, but then it's like a knight doesn't get covered, but you are covered. Like, it, it, you know, it takes a little bit to, to get your head around it, but it works. Yeah, terrain is huge. Um for people trying to build lists in ninth edition and and starting to play games i would say the number one thing is make sure you have bodies that get on objectives it's kind of reiterating the point we already made but like if you build like a list that you were playing during eighth edition that's got three minimum size squads of troops and that's it that's not going to work in ninth uh, because you need those obsec bodies to get in there and and hold objectives and, and like be there and be ready to do stuff 
And if you've got a transport, that transport is probably good now. Um, I think there is only one faction in the game that doesn't have a good transport. I guess Tyranids also. Uh, but they don't really have a transport at all, so, yeah. Yeah, transports are really powerful. Uh, one, one thing I've been kind of noticing is uh, try try and bring bodies for characters, um, but also you need just, just bodies in general. I was having a really hard time. I, yeah. I was getting the most out of a 10-man intercessor squad as I could, and I just was really wishing I had like just a 10-man unit of boulder scouts to just do stuff that I needed that I had the intercessors doing. So anyways, Brandon, we're talking about things that I've learned. A tips for players getting a, a tip or a trick for a newer player or player new to ninth edition that you learned. Um, plan to put things into strategic reserve during the list building phase. Um, that way, when you go to mm. deploy, when you're done deploying, if possible, your opponent really can't hurt you if going second at all because it's a random die roll now. Just always plan to go second. Um, and then even if you win the roll, you're like, I go second. And if your opponent wins the roll and they go second, that's still okay because I think first actually has a big advantage now with the change to scoring primary objectives. So, hmm. All right. Quick, quick uh, poll of the room here. Um The thought train has left the station. I completely forgot it. When I remember it, we'll move on. <laughs> That's what editing's for. <laughs> yeah. th I'm not going to edit that out. That wasn't that bad. All right. Well, we're going to go ahead and move on Great now radio, to Pablo. <laughs> the, the final topic. Um, in terms of uh, list building itself. So we talked about playing the game. We talked about the objectives. Uh, well, I guess we will talk about the missions and objectives a little bit um, in the near future. But in terms of list building itself, what do you guys think about um, the ninth edition list building rules? So before, you know, you, you had uh, kind of like a few TOs. It almost felt like the last frontier along with terrain in that there were different places that would uh, run different kind of uh, list building rules. The biggest one being if you had to put warlord traits and relics on the rule sheet, uh, GW addressed all of that. They just said, you know what, everything's going to go on the rule sheet. I like that they cleared up basically everything with the list building. What do you guys think about that? I think I like it overall. Um, it does mean they need to rethink the way they design warlord traits and powers and stuff. Because as it stands, there's a lot of like kind of niche ones. It's like, I get a plus one to hit against space marines. It's like, well, you're not going to play space marines every <laughs> game, so you're never going to take that. Um, well, you are, but but if it was Tyranids, it would be... Are you kidding? An aura uh, yeah. of plus one to hit space marines? I'd take that to That's all amazing. my tournaments. <laughs> oh, Aura. Is that, is that a no, 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 like... no, sorry, you, you guys are thinking of good rules, not chaos rules. This is plus one to hit space marines on a model that is already plus two up weapon and ballistic skill. Oh, yeah. that exists. So that's like uh, to, to kill probably Raven somewhere, guards, sure. Specifically, or something. Raven who? Uh, exactly. You, you know what, though? I would like it if GW just went the exact like extreme in that direction. They're like, you know what? We're going to make obscure rules. We're going to force you to put the Warlord traits and the relics in the rule, in the list. However, we're going to have a relic that instant kills Trigons. <laughs> just Trigons. <laughs> They're just like... Okay, this so is... You... Uh, 
Maliceptor, like, get angry at the Maliceptor day, okay? I mean, it, it was going there, Sky. <laughs> but... uh, personally, uh, I think that it's I think it's good that you have to put everything in your list. A, it keeps everything organized. B, if you have, like, a yeah. million psychic powers, it saves a lot of time. You're just like, this is my list, this is what I have. Um, and the last, lastly, it does, it balances armies that have less versatility, right? Like, um, if you're locked into your warlord trait, your relics, what and whatnot, um, you know, it, it sort of balances that out to an army that has like fewer options than one that can just pick one for every occasion. Just be like, yeah. oh, I can use it for this or that. Or if you have like a bunch of psychic powers, being like, yes, I brought my Swiss Army knife, and I need this one and this one and this one, you know. And last but not least, it, it increases the value of some stratagems like chaos being able to switch a power and you know things like that mm. slash it also if you have a list of really good warlord traits and you just want to roll for it now there's a there's a reason to say i'm just gonna roll for it instead of just picking one even though picking's like optimal but i mean if you wanted to sure brandon what do you think i actually knee jerk was like oh all my warlord traits that i liked they're gone but then the more I think about it, the more I'm like, if we actually embrace this change going forward as new rules get released, and we create warlord traits that are less about um, having a, a tool for everything, and more about, uh, I want to bring an army that's mostly bikes, so I want to have a warlord trait that um, helps the warlord make my bike army more useful. Or I want to have an army that, um, whatever, whatever your unit choices or play style is, the warlord trait helps enhance that playstyle. So a warlord trait is just a way of enhancing the way part of your army plays. Then that seems more cool. Like the the guard warlord traits are actually pretty reasonable for this. Um one of them is just here, have uh some ability to retain command points and a reroll once per game. Oh, that's great. Another one is uh pick an enemy unit and if you're near the warlord reroll to wound against it. Wow, that's that's pretty cool if you're facing a lot of armies that have the one unkillable unit and you want to be able to take it down. That's pretty great. Or mm -hmm. you have having a friendly unit advance six inches instead of rolling for it. It's like, wow, that's really cool in the new meta for taking objectives. It's like whatever piece of the list you want to enhance, there's a warlord trait to do that. Um, so none of them are bad. All of them can be, well, actually, none of the ones I mentioned are bad. I won't say none of the warlord traits are bad, but um, being able to enhance a specific part of your list um, and the way it works is really cool. And I feel like none of them are over the top or unbalanced or anything like that. So I'd like to see more warlord traits like that um, rather than just, um, I don't know, an aura of plus one to hit with vehicles. That's just yeah. gross. Um, yeah. Please stop making those warlord traits. Thank you. Yeah. So... One thing, I mention this often on the podcast, that I believe that there's still a ton of design space in the game that GW has not touched on yet, not even just a little bit. Um, one of the ones that I always kind of wish they would add was Warlord Traits and Relics that you had to build your army around, um, specifically something like... Uh, Maybe like how a buff to Howling Banshees. Maybe a Warlord trait that says <laughs> Howling Banshees within nine inches of your Warlord get plus two to charge and reroll all their failed hit rolls in combat. Something simple, something nothing crazy, but something that uh, encourages you to bring a unit. But specifically, it's designed to encourage you to bring a unit that isn't necessarily good, 
right? So, like, I'm not asking for, like, a world of trait that drops a Townar by 200 points. <laughs> Although that would be interesting to play around with I'm, stuff like that. I'm asking I don't... for that warlord trait right now. <laughs> Just messaging GW right uh-huh. now. Uh-huh. <laughs> uh, Typing up an email. Anyways, uh, I, I love the idea of, of having warlord traits that design the list. Or relics that design the list. Uh, relic that... I like the idea of like a relic of um, like a pistol that inspires Sterngard, right? They're just like, oh, that's the that's Vile Donatus's, you know, like sacred bolt pistol, and every time it kills an enemy, we you know we like orgasm. I don't know, just whatever, and then it just does something whenever there is a that it's near relic that unit. Plasma pistol for science that kind of works like that because if you get a kill with an infantry model, you can use a strat where all other infantry get plus one to hit, yeah, or plus one to then, wound then- rather. That's cool. I, I I want more. If you're going to lock us into warlord traits and relics, stop making your warlord traits super gener- generic, uh, in general, and and start making specific ones for me to build my list around. And uh, now another thing, uh, that's also cool about that is spamming isn't as good as it was in Eighth Edition. So like you can't take three outrider detachments and just run you know like twelve. Oh, you can't. I guess you can't do that anyways because the rule of three is in effect. But um, you get my point. You can't take Outrider detachments of just heavy support slots and then just have like a heavy support buffing Warlord trait because you'll lose out on a ton of CP. Um, yeah, actually, you, that's something else that I think is segueing into like detachments that you mm-hmm. can tell people is don't be too afraid to soup. Like, <laughs> but at the same time, you know, be mindful of like yeah, where your mom are going. Exactly. Like, don't just take one of everything because you want to, but good use of those attachments, like where you put your warlord so you can get your free warlord trait, so you can, like, get command points back from a detachment with, like, addition of another detachment to add in, like, some flavor or a unit that you need to shoehorn a hole in your list strategy. You know, is that worth you starting with eight CPs? Yes. Awesome. You know, or is it worth making every single one of your rhinos have a five up feel no pain because you're death guard and defilers and you want to start with two CPs? You know what I mean? Like there's there's, uh, you know, the two broad spectrums that is interesting to to note when you're learning to build lists for ninth. Speaking of CPs, remember, you also effectively start with 17 CP, not not. You know, you you get a CP every turn. Actually, I don't. You don't think you get it? You get it the first turn too, right? The first command phase. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. So you get one CP every turn. So one thing I noticed was I played an Ultramarines uh, game where I brought Gilliman and put him in a Supreme <laughs> Command detachment, refunded my my battalion, and then I just had one battalion plus Gilliman, and I started with fifteen CP, and I was like, oh my god, this is amazing! I have all this CP, and I just couldn't spend it fast enough. You can't reroll <laughs> random things anymore with your strategic reroll, so there's less things that you can reroll. So I found myself like begging to roll a miss on wounding with something, so that I could just spend a CP because I just kept just embarrassed by how many CP I had left by the end of the game, um, and then also vice versa. Don't be afraid to spend CP, like Brandon and Scarry said. Uh, because you will get, you will generate a little bit more. You're not going to generate, you know, everything, but you only need, especially in the end game, sometimes you only need one or two CP to win the game, a la Brandon Grant winning Delvio last year. Yeah, morale mechanics with command points are super powerful. Mm-hmm. Um, but what I will <laughs> say as well, I don't think we covered this. I love that this is reducing the amount of time it takes to explain what the armies do before you put models on the table. Yes, mm-hmm. that's actually the. I think the thing I like most about it is it removes that like twenty minute pre game like, 
okay, I'm going to take this relic and this Warlord trade and this other psychic power, and actually I'm going to switch out this psychic power for now. It's just like, it's all written on the list, and you just, do you have any questions about my Warlock and all that stuff? It's like, no, because I've seen them all a million times because everyone takes the same ones. <laughs> Absolutely. All right, now we're running out of time, so we're going to go ahead and wrap this up. Final thoughts? Uh, final thoughts to everyone? What is... Uh, your favorite thing about ninth edition that you're looking forward to that you haven't quite had the ability to explore yet? Uh, I'll start. Um, I think that board control is going to be a very big deal, um, just like strategic reserves, and figuring out the right mix between staying power and killing power and board presence is going to be crucial. Um, and it's going to need to change depending on who your opponent is. If your opponent's just planning on annihilating you in the first two turns from their deployment zone, that's going to be a different game plan from someone who has a possessed star and is going to throw it at you turn one with warp time. So you're going to need to figure out how to deal with both situations adequately, and it comes down to how do you control space enough so that their strategic reserves don't murder you, while also keeping your models on the table, while also being able to be very aggressive if you need to be, while also being very defensive if you need to be, and it's just there's a lot to consider with your board presence. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah, for my part, I think the, the thing that I'm still working out is the balance between ex small expendable units that can kind of swarm the board and take over stuff versus larger, more durable units. You know, are, are infantry hordes or vehicles going to be more dominant overall? Um, not just for my own list building purposes, but also for what you build against, because if hordes are going to be the thing that you have to face the most often, then that's going to mean you're going to want very different units in your list compared to if you're seeing lots of vehicles. All right, Skari? I think the thing that I'm still working on specifically um, is zoning out the table better. You know, board control is very important, as, as Brandon was saying. Um, you know, having durable units is important, but the changes to coherency and, you know, how that works as well has changed. Like, now you're using more smaller units to do what, like, one large unit could do before in terms of, like, taking up space on the table. So a lot of the times you have to pick zones to, to kind of, like, zone out instead of the entire table. And... Um, that and like mixing that with the ability to put the firepower that you need on specific parts of the table because of line of sight blocking terrain being more prevalent and you know the way things work and like you know lines of fire being like an actual part of the game a lot more now you know it's harder to sort of concentrate your like massed firepower uh, from anywhere on the table you sort of have to commit to an area to then like wipe out an area so being able to like you know how much should i commit to this side and how much should i commit to that side that's stuff that i'm learning yeah uh I, the only thing that i really in i'm really looking forward to learning and enjoying is the uh designing lists and then uh specifically to win the gw missions or to play to the gw missions i'm finding myself you know, having to pick very specific niche random units to fulfill roles that I never would have thought of. Things like I, I'm bringing a three-person company veteran Space Marine squad with three Melta guns. Their job is to either A, protect a character 
um, like a Thunderfire Cannon or whatever, or B, they can, as a flex, they can uh, come in from reserve um, and melt a gun something, or they can stay on an objective. Uh, they can be action monkeys if my opponent has like a horde army and I don't need melt a guns. Uh, they're relatively cheap, uh, but I, I absolutely love the list building in ninth edition. I feel like every unit you put in your list has to have a role and is more important than ever. So, love it. I'm so far, I'm overall enjoying the edition. All right, uh, that's it. That's the um, topic. Uh, if you want to know more, if you want to, if you really liked what we have, head on over to uh, Frontline Gaming Network and listen to more stuff. We're going to have more Ninth Edition content next week. We're going to bring on a guest. We're going to talk more nitty gritty Ninth Edition tactics. It's going to be a lot of fun. Uh, and uh, so on and so forth. Also, if you have any more questions, if you're a TO, you're looking for some tournament advice, you can always email me at frontlinegamingpdpob at gmail.com. Or if you're feeling a little patronly, you can head over to Patreon and support the podcast there. Patreon.com slash chapter tactics. Patrons get access to lots of cool stuff. Uh, this month, we're going to be giving away an Indominus box to anyone who listens, not just a patron. So, all you need to do is go to the YouTube comment section or the Frontline Gaming comment section on the last week's episode. Uh, we link to that on FrontlineGaming.org. So, if you don't know where that is, that's where you can find the link. And then just tell us what your favorite 40k podcast is or 40k content is. It doesn't have to be a podcast. You don't even have to listen to the episode. All you have to do is comment comment drop a like and you get a chance to win an indominus box so it's free i've got one lying around i wanted to give it away to you wonderful listeners and not just the patrons all right speaking of the patrons patrons get to ask us questions that we answer live at the end of every episode starting now patron donatus wants to know can a psyker performing a psychic action cast other powers if he has more casts available to him I do not believe so. I don't. I don't think so. I think yeah, it's pretty explicit in the rule. Yeah, it's, yeah. you just get the action or you get the powers. Yep. Uh, patron Kelsey wants to know: Do you have any tips and tricks for remembering new rules or rules interactions? New rules. Oh, uh, read the books many times. Read them. Yeah. Read them again. Yeah. yeah. Depends on how you learn, right? Use like if you learn by doing, make sure you're in situations to use the rule a lot. If you learn by like reading, read. Uh, some people learn it by writing it down multiple times. But something I always do is if there's a rule that uh, your opponent uses or whatnot that surprises you that you want to remember, make sure you read it right then and there. And the more you sort of like expose your brain to it, the more you'll remember it. Uh, mm -hmm. One thing that I don't see people do very often or talk about very often, um, because we do get questions like this often, so there, there's usually a bit of a kind of normal response that something kind of see around line is also uh talking about it to people afterwards um specifically complaining about it whining about the game is a part of the 40k hobby 100 percent. so talking about a weird rule interaction or new thing that got you um maybe not like gotcha hammer but like literally legitimately it you know something you didn't know that you wish you had known that cost you the game or, or caught you know caused you to, to suffer defeat Telling that to people is always a great way to remember stuff like that. Um, I now know what a Malice Scepter does because I had a Malice Scepter kill three shield captains on jet bikes. I never knew what a Malice Scepter was. There are entire units and factions that I just don't know what any of the rules do. I just like look at them like, okay, no big deal. But I know what a Malice Scepter does now because I constantly, when it happened, I told everyone. And then I talk about it often and frequently because it makes such a great story. 
So that's that's another uh, tip and trick I have personally for remembering new rule new rules and new rule interactions. Uh, Patron Kane wants to know: Do you think we will eventually be able to get down to two hour rounds for ninth edition hermits? <sighs> that's a dream. Yeah, two feels optimistic. Two and a half is pretty. Two and a half possible. Though. I think two, yeah. two and a half feels. Possible. I think two hours of gameplay is possible. It's that half an hour of. Uh, you put a unit down, I put a unit down, and I need to write down what my secondaries yeah. are. I need to write down what I'm putting in deep strike. You know that yeah. that takes about fifteen to twenty minutes. We'll talk. We'll talk about it. We'll talk about it later. Um, I think. I think that at the highest level, the the problem is at the highest level, those guys have the potential to play two hour rounds, but also at the highest level, they're they're making. They have to think. They have to spend so much time and thought and energy into thinking about their decisions. So, uh, but I would love two-hour rounds. That that's a dream. Um, patron Jeff wants to know. Would love to hear the squad's perspective on going first versus going second. Um, we already kind of talked about it. Uh, Scary mentioned in particular, but Brandon and Sean, what did you guys think about going the going first versus going second um, kind of debate? I'll reiterate. Plan to go second, and then if you're forced to go first, it's a happy surprise. Yeah, I think, broadly speaking, going first is advantageous. There are certainly times when you'll want to go second, but usually you'll want to go first. But you should be ready to go second at all times because, like Brandon said, it's just completely random. You never know when you're going to get second turn, so don't plan on getting first. Uh, I reiterate that if you plan to go second, you will be doing your plan when your opponent wants to go first and they go first. So mm -hmm. it's just, it keeps you more in control of the game. And you can always sort of like bait your opponent to try and get you to go first. But a lot of the times just plan to go second. You yeah. you still deploy before you before you know if you're going first or second, right? Yep. So Correct. But there are a lot of, there are a lot of, uh, lot of like redeploy stratagems or, mm -hmm. you know, things like that that you can use. Like if you do, dis if you can deploy them back and then if your opponent gives you first, you can move them up. Um, personally, what I like to do is opposite. I like to plan to go second and put something on the table that forces my opponent to want to give me second turn. Because some, because a lot of good players like to see what you're going to do or play armies where you they want you to commit to the table and then they want to destroy you once you've committed to the table or committed to objectives. So having like Reaver jet bikes in my list, you know they can move 26 inches and threaten anything on the board. You put them up and your opponent's not going to want you to go first with that unit, but I'm still planning on going second, even if I have them on the table. Right on. All right. Now, I think this is my favorite question. I was going to add this into the episode, but um, I just decided to save it for the patron questions. Patron Hugh wants to know, uh, why do you guys think GW kept you, you go, I go deployment in? They've done everything they can to save time, yet this the alternating deployment is something that's stuck around. That's something I asked myself the minute I rolled up to ninth edition. I was like, okay, what's deployment? And then um, I think I was playing Reese. Reese just puts a model down stares at me and i'm like oh my god <laughs> i think that's exactly why they kept it they're drinking a cup of tea it's high tea in games workshop right and they're like ah oh, by jove i will put one unit of intercessors here and they're like i see your unit of intercessors and i raise you a unit of chaos spawn over here you know? So oh, I think yeah. uh, I think that it's <laughs> I thought it was like back and forth, like being cheeky, 
gameplay, you know, like trying to bait your opponent out and sort of that, like bit of mental gameplay going on. I think that, that they're trying to like, you know, make that part of the game. Mm. Yeah, they think it's really clever and dynamic when it's mostly just like a long and not all that interesting process. Especially for I like it. I'm a players. huge fan. For for really good players, I pretty much know where your models are going to go anyway. Yeah. So I'm just going to start putting my stuff on the board, but then if we're doing time clocks, it's going to be super annoying because if I'm deploying models while you're deploying models, I'm getting an unfair advantage and vice versa. So I have to like slow down so that I wait until the instant you put the time back on me and then put it down. So it's just annoying. Yeah. I did like it when it was, I deploy my entire army and I'm going first, but then they had seized the initiative still. I, I'm not, I'm still, I'm on the fence about but, it. But my my thing my thing that i my big gripe about it is that the opportunity cost for uh do deploying really well in that phase isn't as high as the negative benefits meaning that there's so many fail there's so many ways you can mess up the alternating deployment right because you're you're making a decision your opponent's making a decision sometimes there's a chess clock going or or you know you you need to get through the game so there's like this extra rush and then you just make a mistake because you're not deploying everything all at once and I get that there's like some skill I'm using quotation marks here involved in that, uh, but for the most part, if you deploy well, it just means like a unit's not going to die, right? Sometimes it means you win the game, but most of the time, like it's another competent opponent. If you deploy well, it means that no one made any mistakes. So to me, I kind of equate it to like you're juggling, right? And then you're passing the balls over to someone else, and then they're juggling, and that's normal deployment, or the deployment where he takes turns. And then alternating deployment is you guys both juggling, but you're also, like, throwing chainsaws at each other. And, like, like it's not cool. Anyways, that, that was actually a terrible analogy. Well, someone has to make a meme of that now. Pablo <laughs> throwing chainsaws at people while deploying yeah. models, while juggling. I don't know, it's just like, why? What the hell yeah. was that? Awesome. I don't know. Love it. It... It's just it feels very it feels like like there's more feel bad moments in there because you're anyways maybe it's just because I suck at it that's also a possibility. Finally, patron Dan wants to know uh, wants some tips on starting a social media platform Discord, YouTube, etc. Um, Dan, I, uh, we've all Brandon's been around people but the three of us scary myself and uh sean have all started stuff so i i will do one tip and then brandon if you have anything for dan as well i'd love i'd love to hear your insights on it but just one tip for starting your own 40k content okay I'm my, gonna start. my mute my 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 mic was on mute <laughs> make sure your mic is unmuted scary that's brilliant there you go that's that's the only thing you need to know uh now just be consistent whether it's whether you're posting once a month, once a week, twice a week, just make sure you do it every week and put your head down. And then three years down the line, after you've been doing that once a week, like you will have you will have created a following. So that's like the biggest thing. Yeah, for Mark Ryder, I would say do something that no one else is doing. Um, there's a lot of people creating 40k content out there who are really good at what they do and are bringing some incredible stuff to the table. It doesn't mean you shouldn't also do something, but you you can't just be a worse version of Nick Nanavati or Skari or Chapter Tactics or whatever. You a have worse to bring version something of Chapter unique. Tactics? Is that possible? 
Uh, like there are a lot a of podcasts version. that are a worse version of Chapter Tactics. So, okay. uh, yeah. <laughs> Fair. Um, uh, yeah, uh, I think that's a really great tip, Sean. Sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off there. That's okay. <laughs> uh, anyways, uh, yeah, I think those are both really good tips. Uh, Brandon? The only thing I'll say is if you focus on creating good content first, uh, the community will come to you. Hmm. Um, I, I, I mean, I could go, this is an entire, this is several episodes worth of uh, content, um, yeah. but I think yeah. the biggest one for me is just uh, get make a plan and make sure your plan includes the, your target audience. Uh, you know, all of that was great advice. Also, also make sure your audio is really good. That's good audio. That's the number one. That's the golden rule. Every good podcast needs to have good audio. Start there, and then from there, pick whatever you want. Start with good audio, and then know where your target audience is. That's it. All right. Uh, that is it. That is the end of the patron questions. Patrons, thank you so much for ans- a- uh, asking those questions. Uh, if you're on YouTube and you are not, and you uh, want to help support the podcast and not want to be a patron, consider smashing that like button. I never ask for that. However, there was uh, an episode of uh, Chapter Chapter Tactics a few weeks ago that got a lot of likes, and then it kind of uh, experienced steady growth that I've never really seen consistently in an episode before. Um, and I did some like quick little research, and smashing that like button is a really, really great way to help your your content creators just the interaction comments and that like button helps with the youtube algorithms it helps put our content out there so if you really like someone it doesn't have to be chapter tactics uh but if you were like someone just hit that like button you know we we get we got like 200 likes uh, i think a couple weeks ago on a video that had you know a couple thousand or a few thousand uh views which obviously it's fine not everyone likes it however um, you know, that means that potentially we could get a thousand or 2000 likes of you, um, or, uh, an episode, right. For anyone. So yeah. So if you like Scarry and Scardcast, uh, and you want to get him more exposure, but you can't quite afford his Patreon, I'll give him a like button, give him a like and comment. Speaking of which, Scarry, where can they find you? Um, you can find me on the Art of War. I'm one of the coaches there. And uh, we have a whole bunch of stuff that's happening with the Art of War, from articles to the War Room, where we do weekly clinics, and we do coaching sessions and live battle reports. And I know it's, I'm really jealous of Nick and the crew, because they have this this house full of crazy good gamers, where they're doing live streams on Twitch and hobby streams. And if you want to find me, you can also find me through the Art of War. And on Scardcast, S K A R E D. Yes, Cast. thanks, Pablo. Yeah, but yes, I'm sorry. What's, as well, I don't think I've ever heard uh, of that thing. What is Sh- that? Sean, where can they find you and your lovely voice? Uh, I'm. We also do uh, in the finest hour, which is the podcast that Shaylin and Ben Jurek and I do. We are putting out weekly episodes again. We have a little bit of a, a hiatus with the tail end of 8th there, but we're back to our regular schedule, and you can find us on Facebook and Patreon and all the usual places. Mm, absolutely. And then finally, Brandon, people still ask me about that Astra Militarum group um, that you mentioned. Yeah, they just needed to ask me on Facebook, and uh, that's it. Just message me, and I will add you to the Astra Militarum Facebook group. What is the name of the group? Uh, you won't be able to see it, so you just have to message me. It's a secret, secret group. It's a secret society of Brandon Grant clones creating the perfect Astromotarum list. That's what it is. 
that's anyways find them on brandon grant at facebook and then brandon do you have any other plugs you want to give out um just that one so you already covered it for me thanks perfect <laughs> thank you so much for listening this has been another episode of chapter tactics as always you are all the best listeners in the world and have a good one